looking to learn more on how to build wealth through real estate? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Make Money Make Sense podcast with Dante Belmonte. Each episode, we have the privilege to bring you a professional in the real estate world. One that will help you become a top investor, whether that's a passive role or managing the day-to-day. Let's jump right in. Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Make Money Make Sense. I'm your host, Dante Belmonte. Today's guest is a good buddy of mine. His name is Dave Evans. Dave is actually the regional vice president of Hunt Real Estate, which is the brokerage in central New York that I hold my license with. Dave has a plethora of information. He's done multifamily investing. He's done flips, uh, foreclosures, rehabs. He has a lot of experience in the investing realm and the sales realm of real estate. So I hope you guys do enjoy this episode and let's dive right in. Real quick, if you have not yet, head over to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, write us a review. It helps out the show a bunch. Other than that, let's get right into it. Enjoy the episode, guys. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. Today's guest is Dave Evans. Uh, Dave is a good friend of mine. Um, He also works for and oversees a large majority of the brokerage that I hold my real estate license with over in upstate New York. Dave, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I appreciate that midday. You're a busy guy. Would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. It's a a privilege to be here. I've, you know, having seen some of the other, listened to some of your other podcasts, I feel like I'm in uh, a a rare group of uh, fine people. So I'm um, Appreciate you asking me to do this. Uh, again, my name is Dave Evans. I'm the regional vice president for Hunt Real Estate. I oversee uh, Northern New York, Central New York, and Eastern New York. Uh, you know, Hunt Real Estate has about 1,500, 1,600 agents. Did about $3 billion in sales last year, so a pretty big organization. I'm very happy to have my job with Hunt Real Estate. I get to yeah, work I- with fine people like you. Well, thank you. Yeah. How, how are we doing so far this year? So last year you said $3 billion. How are we doing so far as comparison to this year to last year? I mean, we got to be kicking it up a notch. It's uh, it's crazy. You know, when we got the the shutdown pretty much across New York State, and we were, we're also in Massachusetts and Arizona, sometime in March, we got the shutdown. We we everyone took a, a breath because that's when our that's when our market really picks up in upstate New York. Right. You know, the snow starts to starts to thaw, and and we were just it, everything was shut down for till June, and so we were you know, well below our budget. I mean, we were 40, 50% off our budget coming into June. And then we just crushed it. We crushed it. And we crushed it to the degree that we've had our best year in our 109 year history this year, yeah. which is incredible. And I think it's just a testament to the commitment that our organization had, you know, when, when this went down, a lot of our, uh, a, a lot of people were, were kind of running for the hills and retreating and, Peter Hunt came out and would say to the leadership team every single day, reassure everyone, no one's losing a job, no one's being furloughed, everyone's getting paid. He said this to us every day, which really, I think, gave everyone such a reassurance that we were going to be here for the long haul. And then we crushed it. We crushed yeah. it. So really, really looking and forward to the coming year too. Yeah, I, I'm excited as well. And, you know, a little background for the listeners. My father, Gaetano, he's been with Hunt for uh, I, or at least 10 years, I believe um, he's been with them for a while. And, you know, he tells me every day, he's like, you know, Dante, we're so fortunate to work with a company that cares about us so much. And he goes, and when, when it hits the fan, essentially, like it did this year, 
we don't have to worry. You know, we're taken care of, you know, the ownership, the management in place cares about us, not the money as much. And that's why he says, you know, that's why I'm here versus anywhere else with holding my license with anyone else. Um, it's more of like a tight knit family. And I know you talk about that a lot too. Um, while we're on the topic of this year, how the market's been going, let's touch on that a little bit. So like you said, in the beginning of the year, we started to have the shutdown. Then June came around and it really started to pick up what is the reason you think that this year started to, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. You have a lot of experience. Um, you've seen a lot of things happen in the market, a lot of cycles. So what do you think this year was different and why it picked up so much? Well, we, you know, we anticipated it picking up. Uh, we anticipate having a strong market. Interest rates are low, economy strong, which always lends itself to a, a healthy market. I think the, what, what um, added to it this year is the home became the focus. Mm. You know, when the pandemic hit and people were at home, they were teaching their kids at home. Their home became their gym. It became their entertainment center. And so they started to realize what any shortcomings they had in their home. You know, it's like for, for me, I love my home, but boy, I'd really love uh, to have a first floor office. You know, mm. and so yeah. uh, we started seeing people get into the market who say, you know, I, I need another bedroom. I need first floor office. I want to have space for a home gym. I want to have a man cave or, or, or you know, a, um, a theater room. And so I think that added to the demand. So you had low interest rates, you know, historically the lowest ever. Yep. You had a very strong market already and low inventory. And then you had this additional demand for people who wanted more out of their home. And so I think all those things, you know, just kind of was a perfect storm for huge demand. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, you know, another factor with, you know, the virus going on, people are really migrating out of these larger MSAs, these larger cities and coming in outside of that. And I think in our central New York market, even our capital region market, we've seen a lot of migration from the city moving into our markets. Um, obviously it being a seller's market, it, it's crazy. You know, in that June, July, August time, we were seeing 20 plus offers on a single home in two days, just yes. something you've never seen before. You know, I'm writing offers for 30,000. Yeah, as many as 30 offers on a property. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I mean, it, I'm writing offers for 30, 40,000 over asking on a property and still not getting it. No home inspection, no concessions. I mean, it's just, it, it's maddening. And I'm surprised these appraisal values have hit as well. <laughs> yeah. The, you know, I, the appraisal we're, we're fortunate that we haven't had that problem. You know, we came out of the, we came out of the recession back in whatever you want to call it, 2011, 12, the appraisals were an issue for us then. Um, as, as demand started to increase, we haven't seen that yet, which is great. You know, you talk about moving out of the metropolitan areas. I'm, uh, I'm talking to you. I live in Saratoga Springs and, uh, you know, we're a stone's throw from Manhattan. And what's, what's happened is that, you know, with the advent of zoom and, you know, broadband, you know, in the last, in the last recession, uh, the, the big hindrance to people working from home is broadband. You know, it just takes so much. And now that's not a problem. Everyone's got it. And so we're starting to see, People that have been, you know, sent to their homes to work, Google announced this, they're just, you can still work from home. You don't have to come back to the office anymore. And so we're seeing more and more of that. And, uh, you know, in the, in the capital region, especially the, the surge in demand from that alone, and from a rental standpoint, you know, if you, single family rentals are, just name your price. Yeah. Just name your price, doesn't matter. So it's, it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting couple of years to see how that all unfolds. Yeah. And, sure. and definitely like, in this August, September, or even more October, November, for us in this season, things start to slow down regularly. 
it becomes a slower season. You're not working with as many buyers, as many sellers, um, especially as the snow hits, but things are still ramping up. We're still very busy. We're still, you know, doing a lot of business at, with the sales standpoint. So that's pretty impressive as well. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, you'll appreciate this analogy. So we have right now across the state, uh, 40% less inventory than we had two years ago, two years ago. So imagine, here's the way, here's the analogy I use. Imagine working for a car dealership, right? And you're a car dealership and you're whatever your brand is. And the brand says, oh, by the way, you're going to have 40% fewer cars to sell. You know, as a salesperson, you say, how can I even function? So what I find to be amazing is that while we have this anemic inventory because of this high demand, we're still selling like crazy, which means we're just, we're just out competing everyone. That's the only, that's really the only answer because when you have less inventory, you're having more sales. It means you're gaining more market share. So not to go down that too far down the path, but it it, it just shocks me every day. Shocks me every day when I look. And everywhere I go, I see our signs versus the competitors in the market, especially in the eastern part of central New York. You know, we have a lot of market share presence over there. Um, We definitely dominate that market. Um, And kind of going back to your analogy, because, you know, going back to my dealership days, when things shut down, March, April, May, auto factories shut down as well. I was talking to my buddies that were in the auto industry and they're like, you know, we're we're, we are 50, 60 percent below what our inventory should be. So we're telling people don't care on the color or anything, literally just pick what you see because that's all you're going to get. Um, You know, even buddies of mine that are looking to go purchase vehicles for their company, they have to go to different States to get the work trucks they're looking for because no one has inventory. You know, we're starting to see that chain reaction when a factory shuts down in April, two, three months later, when that vehicle gets here, it's not there because they weren't making them. So it's just crazy how that's affected everything. I, you know, I I bought a car uh, during the, uh, the shutdown and it was, I couldn't find what I wanted. I wanted something very specific. Exactly. I couldn't find it. And I, I just happened to drive through a lot one night. We're coming home from somewhere and there was a car there that I wanted and it hadn't been put on the lot. It hasn't been put available yet. So I just, right. I went down there. I just bought it. <laughs> the next day I said, take <laughs> Yeah. Now, Crazy Dave, time. your position over at Hunt, talk to us a little bit about that. You've been doing that for nine years now, I believe. What, what is your day-to-day? What are you doing for the company? Yeah, so my responsibilities are to to grow. My my responsibilities are, are really to grow the organization. <clears throat> well, that's my job description mostly, and that you know that means that we need to make sure that we help our current professionals grow their businesses, make sure we have tools in place to help you know everyone grow, but also do acquisitions, and you know we we try to attract the best people in the in the market to come join us. So that's my that's my. Um, my job. What I do a lot of is a lot of um, firefighting. You know, there's, there's just lots yeah. of, especially in this market where there's such demand and there's, you know, so when you have 30 offers on a piece of property, 20, you have 29 people that are unhappy, right? 29 people that are unhappy and they want someone to talk to. So I deal with a lot of, I would say consumer relations and, and, you know, that's the majority of my day is consumer yeah. relations and, and uh, making sure that uh, we're heading the right direction. Awesome. I love it. Let's uh, touch back on your investment background. So uh, you were telling me, I didn't even really know that much of what you've done for investments uh, years back. So do you want to start kind of where you started with your investments, the experience you have and where you've built it up to today? Yeah, sure. You know, I, I was uh, in, in um, college 
I was really sad. I'm going to college and I was going to Chapel Hill for my MBA. And I was just so tired of school that uh, I, I just wanted to go to work. And I had, I was going through the, uh, the student, you know, uh, um, library, if you will. And there was a book called uh, uh, No Money Down by Robert Allen. And it was, uh, it was, I don't know what he's doing these days, but it was a, it was a book about how to buy real estate with no money down. Yep. And so it was the, the, the book was all of a dollar or something and I was, you know, broke. And so I bought the book and I read it and I said, I decided that, you know, my, my father had a little bit of real estate experience. He was a teacher, but he had also sold real estate on the side and did some investing. I decided that I was going to just become a real estate investor right out of college. And, you know, I, I kind of panicked because I had been on this path in college and, and so I call, I remember calling my father and, you know, just nervous about telling him I was going into real estate and, and he was overjoyed, you know, he's, yeah. he's, he's, he would absolutely go for it. And so, you know, I got my license because I thought it would be the right thing to do in terms of gaining access to um, information. And, you know, back then I'm talking 1989, right? So mm-hmm. 30, 31 years ago or so, it was very different. It wasn't, it was you know, getting your license. There weren't a lot of restrictions. It was kind of the wild, wild west. There was no <laughs> agency disclosure. There was none of that. Right. <clears throat> right. And so I got my license. I affiliated with a broker. Um, and I, along the way, I started to invest. I bought a two family house in Albany. I think within a few months of getting my license, um, no money down. I used a creative uh, financing technique to pull it off because I didn't really have any financial history. Um, some of the methods I use then probably be frowned upon today. Um, <laughs> I'm sure, but I bought my first two family and then, um, I just realized that selling real estate would be a, you know, a great way to have some additional income. So I started selling a little bit on the side, investing. Um, and then one day, uh, my mentor, uh, Hugh Roberts, who owned a large independent company, uh, in, in Albany asked me if I wanted to go into management. And I said, oh, sure. And so I went to management, I managed small branch. And then over a period of years, I ended up you know, managing um, a number of branches for him. And all along, I'm still selling, I'm still investing and doing all this stuff and right, right. extracted and um, trying to make a very, very long story short. And <clears throat> he ended up essentially selling his company. And so I left that position and uh, formed a partnership with a couple of other people. And we did, we had a rehab company where we were strictly buying real estate, rehabbing and selling it. Um, and that was my sole source of income uh, for a number of years. And then I got dragged back into management at that organization. I just got dragged back into management, um, which I said I would never do. And then an opportunity presented itself to me where I was able to uh, become a partner in a real estate company. And uh, I ended up owning that company fully and I had four branches. We were doing $400 million in sales in the capital region. And then uh, and then the recession, recession hit and it was a really tough time. And so I sold my company then. And selling, when I say sold my company, sometimes that sounds like a great thing. It was just, you know, running from, from a dumpster fire, really. Yeah. It was tough. And then I went to work for Hunt Real Estate. Uh, and that was nine years ago, almost exactly nine years ago. So that's, that's the short and quick of my, you know, history. Right, right. Now, so you, at 22, you bought your first, uh, was it a four unit, you said? Well, you know, it was a two family. I bought, okay. a, I bought a two family. Um in downtown Albany, this guy was desperate to sell and he held some financing and got creative. That was, that was my first, that was my first building. And I, okay. I lived in it. I moved in. And you still have that one today? I don't have that one today. You know, the, the, um, couple things happened. First of all, I, I ended up buying some buildings in locations that I, 
I hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Right. And so they always say location, location, location. Well, mm-hmm. I got to the point where as a as a young guy, I was like, geez, the ROI on some of these buildings is incredible. You're not gonna buy a building for you know sixty or seventy thousand dollars and have this huge return. And but there's a price we paid for that. So I I ended up getting rid of some buildings that were not in you know perfect locations, and that was one of those buildings. Yeah, it, it's more of like those those C and D class buildings. It's a higher return because it's a higher risk. It's it's more management intensive, and it yeah. takes more versus those A or B classes where it's those those higher end tenants, those newer buildings in those better areas. It's less headaches, but that's why you get the lesser returns. Um, and that's something you know a lot of people on the show when they're listening, they always ask me about it. They're like, well. Oh, there's this D class D uh, this deal. That's a 50% return on investment. It trades at like a 20% cap rate. And I'm like, yes, that's if your tenants pay, that's if the building all stays together. And that's if they, the, you know, the location doesn't set on fire because it's in a war zone is what I tell people sometimes too. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's a different way of investing. You know, we had this, I was uh, investing a lot of that kind of property and I, and I we had this uh, local guy, his name was, um, uh, uh, Dan Potter, and as we call him Reverend Dan, he wasn't a reverend; he was just called Reverend Dan. He owned, <laughs> he owned uh, hundreds of properties in the, as you say, you know, C and D areas. Um, but he was beloved. This is a guy who would show up for his tenants with a box of toilet paper and mm. detergent and all this stuff. He was beloved, and so he ran this organization called Kadarpo, which was the Capital District Association of Rental Property Owners. Capital District Association of Rental Property Owners. And we would have a monthly meeting and it was all sharing ideas, sharing experiences, and it was really cool. And then uh, it's kind of a really sad story. One day, uh, Dan was popping by one of his buildings uh, to check on a tenant and uh, he was murdered. <laughs> he, was just, mm. he, was, he was murdered. And so I kind of looked at that. And a lot of us in the industry at that time kind of said, oh, you know, I'm not so sure this is for me. I'm not so sure. Right. So I started to, you know, kind of... Um, move out of that market, if you will, and focus on, on, you know, uh, focus on safer investments. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, there's a lot of money that can be made there. There's a lot of people that get very wealthy off of that, but um, you know, it, it's a much higher risk and I like sleeping at night a little bit better. So not I can't everyone. do it. It's not, <laughs> you know, my, my, uh, my mentor, Hugh Roberts, when I was doing all this, you know, investing, he said to me once, he's a great guy. He said, he goes, David, Owning rental property is a young man's business. <laughs> and, and I, you know, 30 years later, I think back to his wisdom. I'm like, yeah, that's a very true statement. It's a very true yeah. statement. Now, when you and I were talking on the phone the other day, um, I was kind of telling you how I was wrapping up a, a very large rehab project. And then you kind of, you know, kicked it old school with me and it was telling me how long and how many rehab projects you've been doing. Uh, talk a little bit about that. How many you've done and what timeline and, and what caliber of those rehab projects were. I, yeah, I would say uh, second to my career as a real estate broker, uh, that's probably the single most important thing I've ever done was, was rehab. Uh, my wife and I did one just a few years ago, but I've probably done three dozen, maybe four dozen uh, rehabs, mostly in and around Albany. Um, it was a different time. It was in some ways a better time, an easier time, sometimes a harder time because most of the properties I purchased back in the, when I was doing this heavily was at auction. They were at the courthouse steps and I was self-employed. And so I was able to attend the auctions. I was able to do the research. I had a license. So I knew evaluations, but 
it was a full-time job. And so there was only, and there was only three of us. When I say there was only three of us, there were three of us buying properties at the foot, at the courthouse steps. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally we'd go down to the Albany city courthouse or Albany County courthouse. And we'd go in and the, um, it was the same attorneys that were there. It was the same investors, three of us. I still know one of, one of the guys already, he was there and we would buy these properties and we'd rehab them and sell them or keep them. And it was a, a wild time because at that time, if there were any debts associated with the property, like taxes or liens, yeah, tax lien, yeah, it didn't show up in the upset price. You just had to know that ahead of time. So, <laughs> so it was very risky. It was very risky because yeah. you had to move fast. You had to move really fast, and you had to find out about these liens. And so, I was spending a ton of time. Uh, you know, I wasn't spending a ton of time in the records rooms, going over, seeing what kind of liens were there. And I, I ended up ultimately buying a title company. I owned a title company mostly because I wanted to have access to quick title information. I wanted to make a phone call and say, hey, look, I'm going to bid on this property. What's, what's, what kind of hair is on it? And so it was an exciting time. I kind of get, you know, I kind of get a little bit of a, a buzz thinking about it because it's like such a rush doing this. But the real, it, the risk wasn't that great, Dante, because all you're risking was 10% at the courthouse steps. So it was 10% in cash at the courthouse steps. And then you had to produce 90% within 30 days. Well, if the deal was a dud, you just risk the 10%. Right. So, 10% we're talking a much lower amount because it's a, it's a, I, four, five, six, it. right. It was a four, foreclosure five, in some form. Yeah. So it, the risk wasn't that great, but you just had to have, you had to be willing to accept that risk. So if all of a sudden, I, there was a number of times I bought a property where I didn't see that there was a, a student loan or something that got a judgment and was stuck with the property. And I had mm. to you know, pay this thing off and just walk away from it, just walk away from it. But I did a lot of that and I turned that into a, I turned that into a business, but what happened in it, I, I would suggest it almost happened overnight. And I'm not sure what was the catalyst for this. We could hypothesize this for a long time. It went from there being three of us to there being 30 of us. Mm. And so you hit the courthouse steps and any, anyone who could get a credit line on their house or was down there to buy a rehab. And I don't know if it was because all the, um, there's all these programs on TV about, you know, buying real estate and uh, the advent of the internet, everyone wanted to become a real estate investor. And so right. all of a sudden there was all this competition. And so we moved off of that and we were doing less of that. And we were, we started to do more pre-foreclosure stuff uh, where we would identify who was in pre-foreclosure and just go to the house you know, right. I'd see someone approach them, a knock on the door and we would, we'd, we'd buy them out of foreclosure. Um, that's, that's illegal now in a lot of places. You know, mm-hmm. there was a, there was something called the equity theft prevention act, which was disastrous legislation because we were helping people, you know, the bank's not going to, the bank's not going to, they're just going to foreclose, right? What we would do is we would take over the debt and let people stay there. We let people stay there until they wanted to leave or until they, they, you know, um, uh, they defaulted on us. Right. And so we, had, we gave them actually a chance and we had, we had tenants, if you will, for years that were able to stay in their home. Right. And so the equity theft prevention act made that uh, kind of illegal. And so we, we, I did that for a bunch of years. It was really great. It was fun because no one's going to the house, knocking on the door. Right. Right. And these people, you, these, these people looked at us as initially as um, they weren't, they were suspect, but when we told them what we were really trying to do, that listen, savior. <laughs> we'll take over your debt right now. You can't pay it. We can, we'll take over the debt. We'll negotiate with the bank, but we now own the house and here are the terms. And um, gosh, it was a great way to make money. Great way to make money. Um, but then you know, the, 
legislation changed and we stopped doing that. And then it just became really um, just finding, I, I, as I mentioned to you, I upped my price range. Mm-hmm. I decided the competition was really, the competition was at the, um, you know, the 70, 80, $90,000 range. And so what I did was I decided to move into an area where very few people were. So instead of doing a lot of smaller rehabs, I started doing fewer, but larger rehabs. Mm. And uh, there was no competition there, none at all, uh, because you had to risk a lot more money. You know, so. so like what price point were you going into and like, what were you spending on these properties? Uh, it varied, but we would, we'd look for properties that were, um, you know, 200 plus where we, we, 200 plus because we knew that the average investor who had a hundred thousand dollar line of credit on their house wasn't going to do that because the risk was so great, but because we had right. experience and knowledge, we felt that we felt that that was a safer place to be. You know, the, the last one we did was a, um, it was a post foreclosure and it was in a neighborhood of $500,000 homes. And they're probably $800,000 homes now because uh, mm-hmm. the last couple of years have been crazy. Yeah. But appreciation. Uh, yeah, we, we bought this place from the bank. Uh, we bought it from bank of America for I don't know, 250 or 260. We put a hundred in sold it for four for somewhere in the high fours. And so, you know, bigger money, bigger risk, bigger, bigger return. Right. So, you know, it's a little scary, but that's, that's where we moved. And then to be honest with you, the last few years, my, my job has been it's so demanding that uh, I regret to tell you, I haven't been doing as much investing as of late, but, but we're, our goal this coming year is to um, buy another four unit. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. I mean, that's pretty smart of you guys to pivot basically. So when the market's getting pretty saturated in one sense, so that lower price point, that 60, 70, $80,000 home that needs to be rehabbed, you guys pivoted to a market or uh, basically a, a class that didn't have any competition and it opened up a lot of doors for you guys uh, being able to do that. I mean, we don't hear, you know, very often we do not hear that someone's doing a $250,000 acquisition purchase and then throwing another hundred thousand into it and selling it for, north of 450,000. So that's pretty impressive. And that's very smart that you have pivoted to a different uh, class there. It was, it was a, uh, a luxurious privilege to have, you know, we felt that we had the knowledge and, and that's, that's, it was just easier for us too. Plus work was so demanding. We didn't want to be, we just really couldn't contribute as much time as we used. I'm talking about we, my wife and I, you know, we were doing this a lot together. It just became so busy that I was like, all right, we need to focus on fewer projects, but have, you know, still have reasonable return. Yeah, most definitely. Um, again, very impressive. It sounds like you're looking to get into uh, more investing side of things. You were telling me about uh, a project or a building you were looking to buy now for uh, some tax savings. Is there anything you could touch on now or something you really don't want to talk about on recording here? Well, you know, what happened was uh, we still own like a, the, one of the, one of the first, the second building I purchased with a four unit I told you about. Yep. Um, and it's a beast. I mean, it's in a, it's in a, uh, it's in a fabulous rental market in Albany and it provides us with, Great, you know, secondary income, supplemental income, and uh, I've I've fully depreciated that building. Um, <laughs> it's it's no longer providing us with a depreciation benefit. So uh, I need to. Uh, what happened with my business was I ended up selling a number of key buildings. If I if I had to go back, I would have never done this. Okay, but I ended up selling a number of my key properties to uh, finance my business. And so I was so focused on my, my real estate brokerage that I owned that I sold some just key properties, like a dozen key properties, you know, for my business. And so my portfolio, the timing wasn't that bad because I was so focused on the business. I really couldn't manage the portfolio as well as I had in the past. 
but now I'm at a point where I need the, uh, I, need, I just need the tax benefits. I need tax right. benefits. You know, you, you know, listening to the, um, the cost segregation uh, podcast, by the way, if you've not listened to that podcast after this one, immediately go listen to that one, <laughs> because you know, every time I think I can't learn something, I learn something new. And so um we are going to, you know, we're going to invest in a uh, multi-unit property near where we live. And we're looking at a few in, you know, in a higher price range, you know, just a higher price range that we can get the, the write-off and diversify a little bit. Right. But, you know, in, in, in Saratoga Springs right now, the market's so crazy that it's, it's tough. But, you know, just there was one little story I'll tell you. So when I bought this four unit uh, in Albany, I was 22. And... It was a unique property. It was beautiful. It was Victorian buildings, you know, one main unit, three beautiful studios, and I wanted it really badly. And so um, I thought it was worth like a, maybe 125 at the time. This is 1989, 1990, <laughs> maybe $125 at the time. And so the guy that was buying it from, who's a friend, a friend of mine to this day, he said he'd only sell it for 140 and now he was willing to hold financing, do all kinds of creative stuff. And so it was attractive to me as a guy who didn't have, you know, a W-2 or a 1099. And so, you know, I remember my father, uh, you know, he, he was a real estate person, super frugal, super frugal guy. And, you know, I remember having a conversation with him about, he wasn't cheap, he was frugal. I remember having a conversation with him about this building. I'm like, look at, this is a great building. I want this building, you know, it's, but the guy wants $140,000 for it. And here I am talking to my frugal father and he says to me, so what? He said, so what? He said, you'll never regret overpaying for real estate. Let's just say he goes, you'll never regret overpaying for real estate. So now, you know, I roll the dice by this building. Now it's got income 4,500 a month. You wow. know, it's, it's worth God knows how much. And so his point was one of the truest, one of the truest wisdoms he ever offered me was like, so this, you know, you're that you're, you're 20 some odd years old and you're going to overpay $15,000 for a building that's going to be worth five times what you paid for it in 30 years. So, right. um, you know, we're, we, uh, it's the point of that story is that we're going to overpay for a building in Saratoga Springs. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. In, in this market, you kind of have to, especially in Saratoga Springs, it's a more expensive market than what I'm used to dealing with over in uh, central New York here. But that's something like kind of connecting all the dots, of what we've been talking about this whole time. So, you know, starting out where there's just three guys on the, you know, on the steps of the courthouse. And then now it's, you know, to 30 today, there's probably three to 300 plus, you know, it's, it's very saturated. The market's moving up, appreciating it's a seller's market. So it, it, the profit margins are very slim right now is what we're seeing. And, you know, my partner and I, we're going to different markets. Now we're going to emerging markets where we can really make things happen. And it's something you have to do. You have to overpay once in a while, but if you're holding on to it for the long term, now, are you doing a 1031 exchange from the four unit to this larger one? Or are you just selling it, taking capital gains and moving to the next one and starting the depreciation and uh, cost segregation? Now I know you're going to do it, right? <laughs> you, know, <yeah. laughs> you know, there, I've got a couple of options in terms of how I, uh, we may keep the building. Um, we, we may keep it. Uh, it's just such a, it's such a great income source that we'll probably just keep it, you know? Sounds like a cash cow. It's a cash cow, even though I can't appreciate it. I, I, plus it's, there's some, uh, there's some intrinsic value to that building to me, you know? Mm. So, and I don't usually operate that way, but I, I think that we'll probably, probably keep it. We, but we do have some options if we do want to sell it, including a 1031. Including a you know what you could do? You could take that four unit, call my buddy, Yona, do a cost segregation on it, hundred percent bonus depreciation. You could take all that cost segregation, depreciation possibly. 
let's talk to him about it because cost oh. segregation's Oh, and by the way, that's on my list. That's on yeah. my, trust me, that's on my short list. I'm so excited about that. Yeah. I'm really excited about, you know, just going back to the, um, going back to the, 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 the foreclosures, the other thing that happened in the recession, which no one had anticipated was previously, prior to the recession, the banks just wanted to dump these properties. They just wanted to dump these properties, the courthouse steps, they'd figure out what their upset price was, put yeah. it out there, someone would bid. Get it off their books. The banks beca- became competitors of ours. What I what we started to see was the banks were starting to rehab these properties themselves. Yeah. I don't know. And they started to rehab them and sell them. And so all of a sudden now we're competing with the banks themselves. And so it's, it's you're right. You've got to com- continue, continue to pivot all the time and, and just find out where, where these opportunities are. Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. I used to kind of get in the mindset every once in a while that, well, everyone's doing that. It's not true. It's not true. You know, some people will try to do it, but people who are truly persevere and have grit, they're the ones who will pivot and make the right deals all the time. And I see, I've got friends of mine who are still in the business, making a ton of money, you know, investing in real estate and just because they're, they don't stop. They just don't stop. And that's something that, you know, like, like we were just saying, pivoting was doing the small multifamily thing. The problem with the small multifamily was everyone and their brother was doing it. The barrier to entry was super low. You can get an owner-occupant loan. You can get a conventional. You can get a commercial. You can pay cash. You can do VA, whatever you wanted. And so then I had to reevaluate. And so my partner said, okay, let's look at 20 to 100 unit buildings. If you talked to me five weeks ago, I would have said 20 to 100 units was the acquisition we were going for. And now looking closer at it, all these gurus, all these teachers are teaching these students that they need to get larger buildings. So like that 50, 100 plus unit buildings is what they need to acquire economies to scale, on-site property management. And so my partner, DJ and I, we sat down and we said, how can we go to the no man's zone? And that was that 20 to 50 units. 20 unit and smaller was mom and pa, buried entries very low. That 50 unit and higher are those bigger boys, everyone that's looking to you know play the bigger game. So that 20 to 50 units, kind of like our sweet spot we're looking at right now. And uh, you know, with those smaller units today, people are willing to overpay and we're just not willing to. So that's why we, again, we had to pivot, switch what our game plan was. And I think we found it now. I think it's a great game plan. I think that the, uh, I think it's the best game plan. The, what I've, what I've seen in that area is two things. First of all, there aren't a lot of those buildings in upstate New York, relatively speaking. Right. And so you're, Mm -hmm. you're dealing with metropolitan areas. So it's a, it's a different knowledge set. The other thing is that with those buildings, you know, you, you start to, you have to think like, you know, cause they attract institutional investors, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, having been in commercial real estate for a long time, the, we sold a building in um, Clinton a few years ago. We have a branch in Clinton and yep. we, the woman who owned the business wanted some help. And it was a, it was a three or $4 million property had, you know, whatever number of units to it. And so she asked for my help. An organization, an, inst- an institutional investor from New Jersey, bought the building based upon you know, based upon a cap rate. Little old Clinton, my old stomping grounds. <laughs> they never saw the building. Not they never saw the building. Yeah, they, that they, is... they, they had an inspection done. They bought it based on a cap rate. Yeah, and you know they we had a verified financials. They saw the cap rate and said, okay, add it to the portfolio. And this was a, a consortium. They owned you know hundreds of buildings, and so. You know, you, you kind of get to that world. You're like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm in the, you know, I'm in the, uh, the, the pull my big pants on now, you know. Kind right, of, right. Kind of wow. That is crazy. Never saw the building. I mean, it, it, it happens here too. Like 
some clients I work with, I have some investors from Australia who have never walked in these buildings, never even been to Syracuse and they're purchasing properties because they know they're good returns and on paper they're showing good returns. And so we'll do a little bit of due diligence. I'll hop over in the building, just kind of walk through and be like, yeah, you don't want this one or you want that one. But it's amazing what kind of faith some of these investors put into people. <laughs> I think that they, yeah, I think that they also know that what my, you know, what my father said 30 years ago was you'll never regret overpaying for a building. You know, you look at some of the, look at the Chinese investors. If Chinese investors are coming in to areas like Las Vegas and buying massive amounts of properties because they know, they right. know that this is a long play and that, you know, a building I paid, you know, $100,000 for 30 years ago is worth $500,000 now will be worth, you know, a million in. And so they've, that's ingrained in them. So I think right. that in terms of overpaying, it's more about controlling the, it's more about controlling the asset. Yep. And, and it's not that five or less year hold period that you're looking to get rid of it because then the overpaying comes into play. It's that long-term play that you're talking about. Right. But now that I'm kind of, you know, fascinated with this uh, cost segregation and uh, <laughs> front loading all the depreciation of the first five years, I'm thinking, hmm, how can I, how can I do more? Exactly. How can I take <laughs> advantage of it? And because you're a real estate professional, like you heard in the episode, you know, it goes towards your, uh, your regular income too. Uh, power of real estate, my friend. Power of real Absolutely. estate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we're, so we're going to head over to the next section of the show. Before we do, do you have anything else you wanted to touch on? Anything you know you had in your mind that you wanted to discuss? No, I'm good. I'm good. Okay, awesome. So we're going to go to the section called the Curious Cues. Uh, these are the same questions I throw at everyone on the show. Um, pretty open-ended, so let us know what your answer is. First question is, uh, favorite podcast you enjoy listening to? Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I get that you know, one the most on here. <laughs> it's, you know, listen, I don't, you know, when I'm in my car, I'm on the phone all the time. And so I mm -hmm. wish I had more time to listen to podcasts. And so for me, it's as much entertainment as it is informational. Right. Yep. And so, um, you know, the Joe Rogan podcast is just, they're so unpredictable, you know, and he's, he's so huge. He gets these guests that are just, you know, they say things to him. They won't say anybody else. So I, I Joe Rogan for sure. Awesome. Uh, favorite book you enjoy reading? Enjoy reading. Um, well, I, I'm a uh, avid scuba diver. And so I've, I've got a collection of um, scuba diving related books and um, there, there's more and more coming out. I've got a, a few. So I read a lot of scuba diving books, but my favorite book that I think was most, uh, most important to me was Think and Grow Rich. Mm. Really, really was hell. Yeah, really impactful for me. I've read it probably 20 times. Wow. Yeah, that uh, one's good. Sitting right on my bookshelf. Great book. It's an important book. You know, I, I think it's sometimes it's cliche when people talk about it, but there's a reason it's cliche because it's just so relevant. Right. There's, you know, there's that those series of books that are, you know, foundational pieces that everyone needs to read. You know, The Rich Dad, Poor Dad, The uh, Think and Grow Rich. I mean, there's a few of them in there that everyone, everyone enjoys. Biggest hurdle in real estate you've had to overcome? The biggest struggle in real estate that I've had to overcome, um, access to capital, mm. okay. access to capital. I think that, you know, I had a conversation with, um, with my uncle once and I was young and he, he owned a lot of real estate. Um, he was a real, just a true investor, had a lot of multi-units and I was fascinated and intrigued by this. And, and I said, listen, at my age, I don't have a lot of resources. I don't, you know, I don't, have a great, you know, um, balance sheet or a W2 or 1099. So we can't go to the bank. And, and he just said to me, he goes, ask everyone for money. 
Yep. And he, he didn't mean that from a, he meant that from a standpoint of, of, you know, there's, there's more money out there than, you know. And so I ended up uh, building relationships with what would be classified as hard money lenders. Um, and I still have relationships with some of them to this day. Uh, you know, they've, they were wealthy individuals who had with strong portfolios and, you know, their, they were, their portfolios were secure, but they wanted to make a little bit more money. And so they had the liquidity and they were willing to take first positions on a property. So when I was doing a lot of these rehabs, I reach out to them and say, listen, I I need, I need 60 grand. And they'd charge me a couple of points and 10 or 12%, whatever there was a time. And I just, I'd hustle, I'd hustle to get the job done, refinance it out, pay them back. Um, But that was, that was the, uh, you know, I, I remember I rehabbed a building once on an American Express. So I bought this building in Albany. <laughs> now, this is a true story. This is not something I'd want to really get out there publicly. But what I learned was American Express at the time didn't report to your credit for 120 days. Wow. It didn't report to your credit for 120 days. And so I bought this building on a note. The guy took back a note. It was for 25000 It was 21 Myrtle Avenue. And uh, the place was a three unit. It was a dump. And so... I took back 100% financing and I went to Home Depot and we financed the entire, my brother helped me do the rehab, did a lot of the work ourselves. We put the whole thing on the Amex. And then once it was done, went to the bank and we did a cash out refi, which back in the day, if you didn't have a lot of income, you could do a 60% LTV cash out refi, just fog in a mirror. And so we did a lot of those deals. And then, you know, America's first be calling me, hating on me, and then I'd pay them off within right. 100 days. Didn't impact my credit at all. So, um, I, you know, access to capital has, has always been, you know, one of those struggles. I, I overcame it, but it was just constantly like, oh, shit, where am I going to get some money from? Right, but it defines who you are, overcoming those hurdles. That's what it no is. Doubt. No doubt. Favorite non-real estate-related hobby? And I think it might go back to those books you had, but maybe it's something else. I don't know. Scuba. Yeah. Good, That's see, awesome. I, do, I never knew that about you. That's so cool. <laughs> I've done, I've logged more than uh, 3,000 dives. Wow. Since I, certified. I went scuba diving for the first time on my honeymoon with my wife. We were in Turks and Caicos, uh, one of the reefs there. It was beautiful. Yeah. That was nice. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's been a passion. I've done a lot of, I've done a lot of diving in places where most people wouldn't dive. You know, I've mm. done a ton of diving in the Northeast off the North shore of Boston and, and Maine and Massachusetts and Rhode Island, Narragansett Harbor and New Jersey. And so I've done a lot of cold water diving and, you know, I'm, I'm less inclined to do cold water diving now. I like, you know, warm tropical waters, but that's, yeah, that's my passion for sure. Awesome. Besides my family, of course, my family is first. Right. We, we all know we don't, we don't need that answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's everybody. And last question, newbie advice. So what advice would you give to someone that's looking to get started in the real estate world in some form? Don't listen to people. Mm. Don't listen to people who want to put you down. You know, I had this guy once I was, uh, I was in college and there was this restaurant I used to go to. Um, it was called um, the depot. It was called the depot. It was an old railroad depot. And I was sitting at the bar having a beer and a piece of pizza because it was really cheap. And I remember talking to the guy who owned the place. I was like, you know, I'm going to get into real estate. I'm going to start investing in real estate. I read this book. It'd be great. Blah, blah, blah. And he just completely, you know, mm. pissed on my, pissed on my dream. It's like, Oh, I've tried. It won't work. Everyone's going to real estate. Don't listen to those people. Yeah. Don't listen to those people because you know, they are the naysayers will get you down. It's just not worth it because it's worthy. I mean, it's, it's, it's the, it's the greatest, greatest career, greatest investment in the world. Yeah. I love it. Dave, 
Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. You've, you've dropped lots of great nuggets of information. If someone wanted to get in contact with you, uh, where if they reach out to you, if they have questions about what you've done or what you're doing or even career paths. Yeah, call me Call me anytime. Email me. It's uh, dave.evans at huntrealestate.com. Pretty simple. dave.evans at huntrealestate.com. Um, or 518-495-8500 is my cell phone. 518-495-8500. Awesome. Well, again, Dave, thank you so much for coming on and we'll be talking to you soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. We hope you were able to take some value away from today's episode. For more information or to connect with Dante, visit victorycapgroup.com. See you next week.